to the first Wednesday night of this fine school year. Uh, thank you all for joining us and coming out and trying this thing out. I have to tell you a quick story. Uh, we go to Bayfield every year, and part of our Bayfield event is laying on the beach on Big Bay, uh, Big Bay. And this year we were laying on the beach, and there was uh, two young gals, probably late teens, early 20s, sitting just down the beach from us, just kind of towards the water. And one of them was talking about this book she was reading. And then she proceeds to start reading out loud from the book. And there was four adults, well, actually technically seven adults, it's weird to say, and one child who was 17, almost an adult. And we were all laying there listening to this book. The problem was it had started in the middle of the book, and we didn't understand what was happening in the book. But we were so entranced as she read for 10, 15 minutes, we don't actually know because we all fell asleep. <laughs> we knew we did not know this person. We did not know the book. But the power and the soothing nature of the story led us to engage with something we knew nothing about, with people we knew we didn't know them from anybody. And it was so captivating that our daughter went on this deep dive, having only heard about five or ten minutes of this book, scouring the internet trying to figure out what was this book because it was so good and she wanted to read it. And about a day later, she figured it out. And I don't know if she's bought it yet, but she found out what it was. Do you remember what it was? Okay. Maybe Jenny remembers. She's not in here. That is the power of story. And tonight, I have to tell you, we have an extremely special guest. And I have to just be 100% truthful. I just told Tom this. I told Nikki this earlier. I didn't fully realize how special our guest was until I was doing more looking at her CV and all of the things that she's either published or been a part of publishing and so I was just kind of overwhelmed that she was willing to come up, spend some time with us tonight. We have a legitimate expert uh, on biblical understanding. And so, as I told Paul, we're going to start up here, and the rest of the year is going to be like that Hot Wheels car sliding down the track. So if you think tonight is great, you're right, because from here it goes all downhill. All right, so let's pray. Uh, Father God, we come to you tonight, and we are so grateful for this opportunity to be together. I thank you for each one of these individuals that has carved time out of their day and their week to be here and to be open and receptive to what it is that you have for us and for this group. And I just pray that you'd continue to be with Janine as she has impacted our group already and continues to communicate effectively her love for you and her love for your word. So allow us to be attentive and open to what she has to say to us tonight and allow this year to be impactful on our lives as individuals and our lives as a community as we seek to know you deeper and more fully through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as this goes, some of you picked up the, uh, I haven't fully introduced you yet. Okay, uh, we're disconnected, Lee, from your, uh, Lee's the technical one. This is perfect time to, to buy some time. So if you didn't notice as you were coming in on the table out there, every week there'll be questions that you can grab that will be a part of the discussion, uh, discussion groups. Tonight we are not getting into discussion groups. 
And so you can all breathe a sigh of relief. Those of you who uh, don't look forward to that portion of the evening, no discussion groups tonight. But what is out there is a schedule. And so from now until Christmas, a schedule of the reading. Now, some of you are going to look at that and say, that seems like a lot of reading. Yes, it's an intentionally large amount of reading each week because part of what we're trying to do is look at the larger scope of what Luke is doing in both Luke and Acts. And so as you look each week, there'll be uh, a large chunk of text. One thing I would like to challenge each of you with before next week is to either read or listen to in one engagement through the Gospel of Luke. So either sit down and read through the Gospel of Luke or spend some time listening to it, whether you go on a walk, go on a drive, whatever you want to do, sit in a chair and just listen to and engage with the full Gospel of Luke uh, by next week so that you'll have kind of an idea of how it flows. So, on to our guest for tonight, the distinguished Janine Brown, who has published, as I said, many different things. She published a commentary on Matthew. So if you're listening to, you can come on up now. Uh, so if you want to do some further reading from last year on Matthew, she published a commentary on Matthew. She recently published a commentary on Philippians. She has a very interesting book with a, another one of my professors, Kyle Roberts, on two horizons in the Gospel of Matthew. Super influential within, she's on the NIV, comment, the NIV Study Bible Committee. So yes, you heard that right. If you have an NIV Study Bible, recent one, she was a part of making that happen. Has some very great notes in there. Um, many other things, articles and things. So when I say I'm not an expert, I'm not. This is an expert. So please welcome Janine Brown, doctor at Bethel Seminary. Thank you so much. All right, I'm on? Good, excellent. So good to be with you tonight. It's been lovely to drive up today and spend some time with a few of the folks uh, that are here and um, have this evening together thinking about Luke Acts. I love that you're reading uh, and studying Luke Acts in one year. I grew up in a tradition where um, you were more spiritual if your church was on year five of Romans and you were in chapter two. <laughs> that's a tradition that's out there. And um, I just like to commend you for reading larger sections and to really dive in and try to see the whole. Because one thing we don't get if we go very slowly through a book is we don't get a sense of the whole picture and how a whole biblical book hangs together. Because there's a logic, a narrative logic to the Gospels. There's logic to what different writers of the Bible are doing. And so that big picture view is what we're going to talk about tonight. Before I start, I just want to do a little plug because I'll forget to do it at the end. In the back table, there are some little cards about Seminary for Everyone, which is a, a non-credit thing we're doing at Bethel. There's a little, one of those little UR, what are they called? URL codes, of, there's something like that in the back. Q, there, QR cards, there we go. Um, if you want to check it out, we are doing a course in October um, on Hope for Christian Unity. And we're featuring Francis Chan, who's been with us this year at Bethel. Um, Francis Chan is author, pastor, writer, and he has a book called Until Unity. We're going to be using, and he's coming to one of our 
hour-long Zoom sessions in the course, uh, and we'll have some other guests as well. Myself and the dean of the seminary will be facilitating the course. And um, if you'd like to know more, feel free to grab a card and just take a peek at the website at Bethel that tells you more about it. And there's a code on the back to give a discount. So just to let you know about that. Um, reading Gospels as Wholes. Um, I grew up knowing lots of Bible stories and knowing lots of stories about Jesus particularly. I could tell you that Jesus healed the servant of a centurion, but I couldn't tell you exactly which gospel that was in, if there, were more than one, if there was more than one gospel that was in, and where it fell and why it was in that particular place, how it functioned in its storyline. Um, one of the things that gets me excited about uh, studying the gospels and teaching the gospels is helping people to see that where a story comes matters for what's going on in the story. Um, and um, my daughter, when she was little, would be asking for stories of Jesus, and I thought I had exhausted all of them. We were in the car and driving. She would tell me another story about Jesus, and I'd tell her another story about Jesus. And um, After a while, I started to tell her little larger bits of the storyline that included a number of episodes of Jesus healing or teaching, what Jesus said, what Jesus did. Um, and that kind of got me started on this journey of thinking about what is it, how can we help one another really listen to the whole of a gospel? And for you, it will be gospel and acts. So as we think about that, I want to acknowledge that um, reading in small parts, often quite small parts, is really quite comfortable for us because we've been trained to do so, and we've been trained to do so by the church and by the academy as well. So in the church, we have typically interpreted the gospels episode by episode, maybe 10 to 15 verses, a story of a healing, the story of a controversy with Jewish leadership, a story of something Jesus taught or said. Um, and we are pretty comfortable with the Gospels in their smaller parts. We're kind of comfortable with that across Scripture, really, because um, often when you're preaching on a text, you preach on a 10 to 15 verses, something like that. Um, and I'm going to invite you just to think a little more broadly about it, and it disconnected again, just to let you know. Um, Oh, yeah, just to let you know, okay? You can advance my slide, there we go. Um, but I want to not put the blame on the church in recent years. Um, I also want to talk about how scholars have done this kind of atomizing, making things really small, and, and taking a look at a verse at a time, or a word, or a 8 to 10 uh, verse passage. And that's the way scholars have often done this work as well. Next slide, individual episodes uh, in some understandings in scholarship are about like just strings, uh, pearl on strings, and you could cut the string and the pearls could go fly and you could put it back together in a different order. It doesn't really matter. It's all what Jesus said and did, so it doesn't really matter what order we get it in. I would say that each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very interested in helping us to see, again, the logic of what Jesus did and said, and they often group things together um, in ways that are very thematic. In fact, um, in the first century, biographies that were written outside of the Gospels um, were often written with a theme very much in mind, especially in kind of in the middle section of a story of a famous person. Um, the story was really drawn together by themes, and we see some of that in the Gospels as well. So I'm going to start with a text in Matthew, even though I know you're going to be in Luke for the time, uh, next foreseeable future. Um, there's a small little passage in Matthew 8, 1 through 4, about a man is the, who's healed by Jesus. We read, When Jesus came down from the mountain, 
large crowds followed him, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Four verses. Great story on its own. We could meditate on that story and I think get much about who Jesus is and what Jesus does, his compassion, um, his willingness to touch a man with leprosy, um, his interest in having the man go the full next step and be purified in the temple. Uh, lots to talk about, um, but one story. So hang on to that story for just a minute and think about how we might pull back and see the wider story as well. So next slide. As we try to get a field for the whole gospel, I'm going to let you just keep on getting the rest of the slide up there if you would. There's a lot of ways you can do that. Um, Eric has invited you to read a gospel in one sitting or to listen to it. Uh, if you go to Bible Gateway, a lot of translations there, you can click on a translation you like and you can listen to the audio of that. That's one, just one site where you can do that and hear a gospel all in one sitting. You can also look at various outlines of Gospels because sometimes an outline helps you get a sense of how the thing hangs together, the structure of it, what parts are there. Um, you can see potentially in the Gospel Jesus' Galilean ministry um, before he heads to Jerusalem in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and how that looks maybe in an outline. Um, in my book, Gospels of Stories, um, I talk about different ways we can get our head around the whole. Uh, of a gospel. Um, some different ways scholars have done that, but ways that pastors and teachers and leaders can do that as well. And average Christians can do that as well. Um, so if we were to think of this little section in Matthew 8, where Jesus heals a man with leprosy, it might be help to just, helpful to just zoom out a bit and say, what's come right before this? Well, Matthew 5 through 7, those, all three of those chapters are what's called the Sermon on the Mount, very famous Sermon of Jesus, three long chapters of Jesus' teaching. And at the very end of that, we hear that Jesus is acclaimed as one with authority. He teaches not like the other Jewish leaders, he teaches as one with authority. And then we have this healing of a man um, with leprosy, but then the rest of chapters 8 and 9 are full of at least six or seven more healings. There are actually ten miracles that show up in this section of Matthew 8 and 9. So we get to see Jesus going from speaking with authority now to acting with authority, with compassion. And we start to see um, that people come to him in faith and then they're healed. And even though the word faith isn't used in this short little passage, when the, the, um, the man says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, I think that's a pretty strong statement of faith. He believes Jesus can do it if he's only willing to do so. And Jesus says, I am willing to do so. So Jesus' compassion and his authority are coupled with the man's faith, and then this beautiful story emerges. And what we see is a number of stories after this where Jesus heals people and commends their faith and recognizes their faith that they are trusting in him. So you can kind of see more of the narrative logic if we move back and start to say, how does this fit in with the whole? Justin Martyr, who wrote in the mid-second century, um, said this, reflected on this, about how um, the early church used scripture. 
He wrote, In church gatherings on Sundays, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets, and that refers to the Old Testament, memoirs of the apostles, New Testament, are read as long as there is time. Not for four verses, but as long as there is time. And I'm imagining as much as they could, they set aside time to devote to the reading of Scripture. We also know they sang hymns. We know they prayed. We can look at some of the epistles and see kind of what they were doing in these gatherings. But they seem to set aside time to read larger sections of the memoirs of the apostles, which I guess the Gospels fit really nicely in there. So, as we think about kind of multiple chapters being read, maybe in that early church context, I think that's kind of a good model for us to think about, and I think that's what you're doing this year, really, is saying, let's look at larger sections of the Gospels. So, as we think about kind of a method, maybe, for how to go about this work of reading Luke, we're going to read all of Luke for next week, uh, and then you're going to kind of take a couple chapters at a time, right? So... um, And certainly you can just read and see what you see. That's just like a really good thing to do in Bible study, right? Pay attention. Um, Notice things. Um, See what kind of connections are being made. See what kinds of themes emerge. Um, To help me do that, I've been really helped by something called narrative criticism, which is um, an approach. Criticism means an approach, essentially. Um, A narrative approach that looks at two levels of a narrative, a way of looking or studying a text and kind of thinking about the two levels. Um, and these are kind of not literal levels, but are, are kind of a way of looking into a text. The first level is the story level. The second level is the discourse level. I'll talk about what those are in just a minute. Um, the story level is the thing we're very aware of where we know how to read a story. How many of you have read a good novel recently? You didn't stop at chapter one, right, for four or five days and say, I'm going to just reflect on that. Or maybe you did. I mean, if you didn't have time to read, that's fair enough. But you don't, you didn't probably stop after the first paragraph and say, I'm just going to sit with that a while. No, you just, you start to read long sections, right? And you pay attention to the story, the plot, characters, etc. That's the part we know. Discourse level, I'll explain a little bit about what that's about for purposes of analysis or thinking more deeply about a story. But I first want to back up and say storied methods can be useful even for understanding historical narratives like the Gospels. So when I say story and I say the Gospels, I don't want you to think that I don't think the Gospels happened. The things in the Gospels did happen. Jesus lived and healed and spoke and taught, and he died and was raised. And it's helpful to use this kind of narrative approach, even though it was um, first developed for fiction or film, that kind of thing. It still can be helpful for us to kind of lean into thinking about a story more deeply. So I want to recognize that we're using a tool from outside of the Gospels, but it's helping us to see the Gospels. That's what I would argue. So storied methods can be useful for understanding these historical narratives. And first of all, because the discourse level, which I'll talk about in a minute, now you're kind of like, what's that discourse level? Excited to hear about that discourse level. No. Whether you are or not, let's all pretend we are. So um, because a discourse level helps us to hear themes and theology. It's not the case that the New Testament, uh, like Paul and the letters, give us, give us theology and the narratives just give us sort of the bare facts of the matter. The Gospels are deeply theological. And they often do that through kind of showing themes that keep on happening across the storyline. So we're going to talk about how do we recognize those. Um, that's why 
I find this method helpful because it helps me hear kind of theology and themes in the Gospels. And then the second reason I think it's helpful is because all narratives, even histories and biographies, are necessarily selective. John gives us some things that Mark doesn't. Mark gives us some things that Matthew doesn't. Matthew gives us a whole bunch of stuff that Mark doesn't give us. All of them are selective. I love this line, next slide, from John, where John tells us at the very end of the gospel a little bit of his logic in what he did. He said, Jesus did many other things as well as ones he's just written about in 21 chapters. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John says, I was selective. Matthew's selective, Luke is selective too. So as we look at Luke, we'll ask, what has he chosen and where does he land? Where are the emphases? And that's going to be part of the exciting part of reading a gospel as a whole. So the two levels of the narrative, here we go. The story level, again, is we're used to paying attention to the story level. It includes settings, characters, plot, and let me talk just a little bit about each of these. So, setting. That both includes the time frame setting and also the place where things happen. So let's go back to Matthew 8, 1 through 4. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. He had just been giving the sermon on the... Right, he was on a mountainside. In Matthew, mountains, and this is actually the case in the Old Testament too, mountains are places where revelation often occurs. So the Sermon on the Mount is this teaching about how to live in light of the coming kingdom faithfully. And it's, it's this kind of moment of revelation in Matthew. And later on in the transfiguration story, they go where? Up on a mountain. And Jesus is transfigured before them and revealed to them in a new way. And then at the very end of the gospel, they go to Galilee and they go where? Up to a mountain. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. New revelation. So there's even a book out there called Matthew and Mountains because it's such a common setting in Matthew. Matthew highlights it to help us hear how important these moments are where Jesus speaks something new or does something new. So that's just one setting. Characters. Who are the characters in the story of the man with leprosy and Jesus? Oops, I just gave it away. Two of them, right? Man with leprosy, Jesus. But there's someone else that's mentioned, right? Who's mentioned as well? Go to the priest. Now, he's not in the story, but this tells us this man's going to be needing to take the three-day journey to Jerusalem by walking to go show himself to a priest and give the appropriate sacrifice. And this tells us something about Jesus. Jesus doesn't flaunt the Torah. This is something required in Leviticus 14 for someone who is at a skin disease. And Jesus says, go do this. So that, that character there that's not present but is spoken of gives us a picture into who Jesus is a little more deeply. He's one of power and compassion. He also doesn't flaunt the Torah. In fact, he has said in chapter 5, just a little bit before in the Sermon on the Mount, I've come not to abolish the law but, but to fulfill it fits, works really well. We hear kind of the themes as they emerge. And then um, we think about plot, conflict, climax, resolution. Jesus here says, see, don't tell anyone. And this happens a few times along the way in this period of time when he's preaching in Galilee. This is part of his Galilean ministry in Matthew, which starts in chapter 4 and goes to chapter 16. 
And he will frequently enough say, don't tell anyone. That contributes to a plot motif. We won't talk about it a lot here, but it is just, um, an important motif because for Jesus to come out and say, I am the Messiah, and start to show himself really clearly as who he is, um, is, is uh, a dangerous kind of move in this context. Um, and he can, of course, get into trouble, which he does once he sort of publicly proclaims who he is, and within six days or so, he is nailed to a Roman cross. So at this point in this ministry, early on, he's doing a lot of healing, preaching, teaching in the different villages of Galilee, and he says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Just keep it a little quiet. Later on, we'll see kind of the full revelation of that in Matthew. All right, so that's the story level. And if we wanted to look really quickly at Luke, because we've been Matthew, uh, the next slide will give us a picture of some settings in Luke. Uh, the key, two key movements in Luke are from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, the whole thing starts in Jerusalem. We'll look at that a little more closely later. But by the time chapter 4 rolls around, we're in Galilee. Jesus is in Galilee, and his public ministry in Galilee lasts till chapter 9. And then from chapter 9 until chapter 19, he's journey, journey, journeying. Boy, that's hard to say. Journeying to Jerusalem. And then in 19 and following, he's in Jerusalem. So those are kind of the two key places, up north in Galilee and then down to Jerusalem. Or you always go up to Jerusalem because once you get to the base of it, you walk up. And then characters. Here are some characters in um, Luke. I mean, there are many of them, but some of the key characters, of course, are Jesus, the disciples, crowds, Jewish leaders. Later on, Herod, Antipas, and Pilate. Herod, who rules over Galilee, and Pilate, who rules over Jerusalem or Judea. Um, you could also add all those interesting people in the first two chapters, Mary and Zechariah. And so we could uh, have fun listing all the characters. Um, but that's what we pay attention to when we pay attention to the story level. The settings, the characters, and then the kind of the basic plot. Conflicts, climax, resolution. Uh, a number of times in Luke we get an idea that um, uh, various Jewish leaders are concerned about Jesus and what he's doing. In chapter 6, verse 11, the Pharisees and scribes are angry and plot against him. In 13, 17, also in chapter 14, we have Sabbath controversies, controversies over the Sabbath. And Jesus says, is it not right to heal on the Sabbath? And they're like, mm, back and forth. And they argue about it. And all his opponents were humiliated, according to chapter 3, 17, because of his answers about how he um, responds to those questions and controversies. And then in 20, 20 verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests want to arrest Jesus, but they're afraid of the people, so they kind of hold back. But later on, they come at him, and of course, they do arrest him in chapter 22. So that kind of thread that goes through that really moves the plot forward, which will end with Jesus on a cross, a Roman form of crucifixion, or of, of execution, and then, of course, the resurrection after that. So let's talk about the discourse level, though, because I know you're just dying to know what that's about. What is that about? So if I'm reading through Luke next week, Janine, what should I be doing? What's this discourse level? How should I look for it? Well, the discourse level comes in three different ways, and um, you could probably put it under the big category of just themes. What are the themes that get woven through a story? Think of um, a famous novel like um, Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, kind of the story, and the three ghosts come and warn him. 
you know, one of the themes in that story is about this, um, about miserliness and then generosity that turns into generosity. He's very, he just pinches every penny, right? And he, he's not at all um, giving with his money. But at the end, he's like, has changed completely into this very generous person. So that's kind of a theme that runs through the story. We can all recognize it. And Dickens doesn't have to say, and the moral of this story is, be generous. Miserliness will not help you in the end. He doesn't have to because he's told the story and he's woven the theme so beautifully through the story, we've gotten them. And I'd encourage you to, in, in your study of Luke to think that way. That themes aren't these things I have to, where are they and what are they? Just start pay attention to the themes that emerge. What keeps on coming to you as you are reading? What are the themes that bubble up? So themes can come simply by repetition. If you would check an old-fashioned concordance, you don't have to do those anymore because you can just do searches on a Bible gateway app or something. But if you looked at the number of times the word repent or repentance comes up in Luke, as compared to Matthew, Mark, and John, huge number in comparison. And Matthew, Mark, and John are interested in repentance. They have it quite a number of times themselves. But Luke like triples the amounts of times we hear that term, that language. Very interested in that theme. So pay attention to the themes that bubble up. And that's sometimes just by repetition. Sometimes a theme gets clustered in a particular place, like Matthew 8 and 9, and the theme of Jesus as compassionate healer, the one who has authority and compassion to heal, gets really clustered there, even though it shows up at a few other places in Matthew. It's really compacted there. Um, and then this fancy word, I heard this afternoon, inclusio is a fancy word um, you know, that we haven't all heard. So inclusio is just, a, everybody's going to put their hand up here to make a bookend. Do you know how a bookend works, right? Make a bookend. That's an inclusio. Beginning of a story, so I had to do it from left to right, right? We're in Greek, not Hebrew. Left to right. So beginning of a story, end of the story, if you put a theme in both those places, you don't have to keep on repeating it all the way through. In the first century world, in the Jewish world, that means that's important. One at the beginning, one at the end, you've nailed it. You've now communicated how important it is. Example from Matthew, because I give all my examples from Matthew, if they're not from Luke for this particular talk. So Matthew 1.23 birth narrative of Jesus, he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Very end of the gospel, last verse, Jesus says, and I will be with you till the end of the age. Jesus as God with us, Jesus with us, is a hugely important theme in Matthew, and he doesn't have to talk about it anywhere else because he's just told you with the inclusio, which means you have to raise up your hands, inclusio, inclusio. You'll never forget an inclusion. Everybody say inclusio. All right. Matthew 123, 28, 20. Luke has an inclusio too. Be looking for it. Another thing is sequencing. Realizing that in uh, an ancient biography, which the Gospels resemble in some ways, you can have theme be more important than chronology. Like, <gasps> that's not good history writing. You can't mix things up in order in the middle of a story. Well, you can if you're writing in the first century because good biography is more about theme than chronology in that middle part of the story. All the gospel writers start with the birth if they have one and they go to the early part of the ministry and then they go to Jerusalem. They get the order quite right. But in the middle where things get really kind of interesting and they're just episode after episode, 
you could compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see, oh, things aren't quite in the same order between all of them. And that could make you really nervous like it did when I was growing up because I thought I had to prove that the Gospels were reliable. And one of the ways I did that was to show that there were no problems in chronology. And then when I found out, oh my goodness, first century biographies can have chronology that does this a little bit so that a theme can be promoted I was just so relieved. It's like, oh, good. So now I can study and pay attention to themes that cluster um, and the order and arrangement of things. So what we sometimes see in uh, sequencing in the Gospels is a clustering. Matthew 89 is what I've been talking about as a cluster of miracle stories that, again, in Luke and Mark are in a little different order or might be spread out a little more. They're all clustered together to show that Jesus is a compassionate, powerful healer who is then described in 817 as um, the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Only Matthew gives us that little bit from Isaiah to talk about this whole section of Matthew 8 and 9. It's a beautiful set of chapters. There's also something called intercalation, which is another fancy term. You don't have to worry about this one because there's a, a, a way cooler way to talk about this. It's called a sandwich. Intercalation is just a sandwich. You start a story, another story intervenes, and you finish off the first story. Mark loves them. He has about seven or eight of them, so they're called usually Markin sandwiches. So you didn't know there was a Markin sandwich? There is. Chapter 5. A woman, excuse me, Jairus, comes to Jesus for healing for his daughter, who is near death. She's 12 years old. And then a woman, he starts to go toward Jairus' house, and then a woman comes who has had an issue of blood for 12 years and has been suffering with that, and she touches the hem of his gar garment, and he says, what happened? What, what happened? You know, and the power goes out from him, and then he, he says, woman, your faith has made you well. And then we get to the Jairus scene at the end in his house, and he raises the daughter from the dead. So we have this intercalation, Mark and Sandwich. The bread is the Jairus story, the meat in the middle, or whatever you want if you're vegetarian, the mushroom in the middle is. It's not about the meat, like this is the most important. What's, what, what's interesting about intercalation or a Mark and Sandwich is that they're mutually interpretive. You'll see themes that go across both of these stories. That's kind of the importance of an intercalation. And again, Mark has about seven or eight of them. Then finally, point of view. Oops. I didn't do that, did I? Okay. Point of view just means the author's voice, kind of the narrator or author. We hear um, implicitly an author telling us whose voice we can trust and whose voice we can not trust. So, um, so I'll go back to Matthew's Gospel because this is where my quick illustrations come from. So in Matthew 12, uh, the Pharisees say to the crowds, this one casts out demons by the prince of demons. They say that about Jesus. How many of you think they're right? Yeah, no, no. We know they're wrong, right? How do we know they're wrong? Because from the beginning, we know that Jesus is the Messiah. He comes from God. He's been authorized by God. We've heard that really early on. And if we're Christians, we believe that. But even if we're just a reader who doesn't have those kind of commitments, we know that by chapter 12, Matthew thinks they're wrong, right? He's evaluated their point of view. This is kind of basic story one-on-one. -on -one. We get an author's point of view because they've told us who the bad guys are and the good guys or the you know, ambiguous characters or that kind of thing. I just had students in a class doing um, a character study on Nicodemus in John. You know, Dick Nicodemus from chapter 3, but he also shows up in chapter 7 and in chapter 19. Chapter 3 is like, doesn't get much. Chapter 7, he questions um, 
his fellow Pharisees because they're not giving Jesus a chance to respond to the charges against him. Even our law says, right, that a person should have that right to, to respond. <clears throat> and then in chapter 19, uh, he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, um, prepares Jesus' body for burial after Jesus has died. That's our three moments with Nicodemus. Um, some people have think it's a fairly well, it is probably a fairly ambiguous portrayal. But I've just had students arguing: do you think it's a positive, negative, in between? They got to choose what they thought. They had to show me in the text what uh, what that portrayal was about, and they had to use some sources of people who have written about it. There's plenty written on this guy. Um, just an interesting question: What is the author? How is the author shaping? that characterization to say, is this somebody who's clearly a follower of Jesus or seems to be a follower of Jesus or clearly not a follower of Jesus? I don't have an answer to it yet. I've just been reading papers so far. I'm quite fascinated by the question. So, um, so that was the next, sorry, that was point of view. And then next slide. So let's think about this with Luke because I've talked about Matthew and John and let's think about Luke. What are some themes that show up in Luke? And you can hit the Next couple buttons. Well, this step there. Um, chapter 2, verse 11. And I always hear it in the King James, and I hear it in Linus's voice. And it's, um, For to, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior. And you think, well, that's, you know, yes, we know Jesus is our Savior, right? The gospel writers don't use that language much for Jesus. Mark and Matthew don't use Savior language at all. no. Matthew will say he came to save his people from their sins. The idea is there. But the word itself um, is unique to Luke and to John, and it just comes up a couple times in Luke. And in chapter 1, we've just heard that Israel's God, so the true God, is Savior. Um, Mary has referred to him as a Savior. So the God of Israel is Savior. And now, for unto you is born this day a Savior. Now we have a person, a human being who's a savior, a born person, or that is a kind of oxymoron. Yes, born, all people are born. So a bo someone who's born savior, wow. So not just is the God of all um, time and infinity savior, but now this baby is savior. Wow, that's a powerful move, isn't it? We hear about Jesus's ministry to the poor across Luke. In chapter 416, in the very first um, thing Jesus does in his public ministry in Luke is to preach a sermon in his hometown. It doesn't go super well. Just want to say, and then Jesus says, prophets aren't welcome in their hometown, clearly. Um, but he preaches from Isaiah. He opens the scroll of Isaiah and he says this, the Lord, the spirit of the Lord is on me to, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolls up the scroll, sits down, and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's kind of, that's, that's his manifesto in Luke, right? That's, it's like this is the center of what he's going to be about, and we see that worked out. So in, Matthew, in Luke 6, we hear, blessed are the poor, not the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor. And then we hear um, parables about the rich man and Lazarus and the rich fool. Um, and we hear about a blessedness coming upon those who don't have anything. What is that about? Pay attention to that theme as you read through Luke. 
and then Jesus as prophet. In all the Gospels, people think Jesus is a prophet, um, and, and that's not a bad designation. It's just not enough. You know, it's not adequate to say, who is Jesus? Well, he's just a prophet. No, but that he's prophetic is clearly an interest of Luke, that he fits that category of prophet, but of course, prophet and more, prophet and savior, prophet and messiah. But we hear this theme of prophet um, across Luke as well. Um, where's my list of prophet stuff? There we go. Uh, in Luke 7, when Jesus raises a boy from the dead and his widow mother is so grateful to have this, her family back, um, people say a great prophet has appeared among us. And then Jesus says no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He says that in chapter 13, referring to himself as a prophet. And then in chapter 24, when those two are walking on the road to Emmaus and they don't recognize Jesus and they're chatting with him, they tell him about this prophet Jesus and their disciples. That, that's an adequate, I mean, it's, an, it's, a, it's a true thing about Jesus. He is a prophet. It's not enough to say he's a prophet, but it is a true thing. So that's a theme in, in um, Luke as well. And then sequencing. Um, one of the things that Luke does that's really interesting is he often pairs a male and a female figure, whether in the storyline, think Zechariah, Mary, prologue, or think about um, in chapter 7, uh, there's a centurion's servant who's healed and there's a widow's son who's healed back to back. He, he pairs these things together. Um, it seems to be intentional. And in chapter 15, we have the lost coin, the woman who loses a coin. She has coins and she loses one. And then we have a man who has two sons and he loses one of those. The son goes away. Uh, so we have kind of this pairing going on that seems very intentional at various points in the storyline. So he's doing some sequencing thing that's sequencing that's helping us to hear kind of both men and women engaged in this thing called um, the kingdom. And then finally, point of view. Uh, we go a lot of different directions here, but it's interesting to think about point of view when we hear Zechariah and Mary at the very front of the story, both in chapter 1. Because if you remember the story, Zechariah questions what the, uh, um, the angel Gabriel says, and he, he is um, struck silent until John is born, right? Mary questions the angel Gabriel, and she seems fine and maybe even commended for her response. So what's going on there? How is the author kind of shaping how we should hear these two characters? Well, one thing that's interesting is that Zechariah says in 118, his question is not exactly like Mary's. It's close, but not exactly. He says, how can I be sure of this, that his wife Elizabeth, who is older than childbearing age, will now have a child? How can I be sure of this? What does Mary ask when she hears that not just she's going to have a baby without any way of having a baby that anybody's ever thought of before? You know, apart from sex, in other words, sorry. I didn't want to say the word sex. I don't know you guys. I don't know if that's an okay thing in northern Minnesota. But anyway, without having sex, she's going to be pregnant. So what does she say? She says, how can this be? Not how can I be sure of this. How can this be? I mean, hers is the bigger leap of faith, right? You got to say, how many think Mary has a harder thing to believe? Who in the Old Testament maybe should Zechariah have been thinking about when you think about somebody past childbearing age having a child? Abraham and Sarah, right, right. I mean, there's good precedent there. There's no precedent for Mary's thing, right? How can this be? How can I be sure of this? It's just this slightly different, and I think the author tells us by what happened afterwards 
that one was um, not commendable, at least. Um, the other, probably commendable. So, um, done a lot of stuff with this discourse level. If I just had to narrow it down to one word, and you just have one word to hang on to, what should you pay attention to? Themes. Themes, exactly. So, we have the storyline is kind of the plot, discourse level, themes. So, as you're reading Luke, pay attention to plot, because you will anyway, because that's kind of what you naturally do, and then pay attention to theme. Think about the themes that you're starting to hear. Really, that's the one question you can ask. You can think about all these different ways that could happen, but you know how to read a story. You'll see the themes. You'll hear the themes. You'll recognize the themes. All right. Let me just make a note about the importance of historical context of the Gospels. So, I, I mean, I've been talking about this reading a story. Again, I'm saying this is not a made-up story. This is a historical story. So the context that we put behind it is important. We should be thinking first century and not 21st century as we read the Gospels. We don't want to import our own values or ideas. We do some of that anyway. That's okay. But, you know, to try to check our work and say, have I just put behind this story something that comes from my own context? Or how can I figure out how to pay more attention to that first context? How a first reader would have read Luke. That's kind of what we're shooting for in some ways. So um, as we think about the next slide... And the next bit, two important worlds for analysis or settings or contexts. The first is the Greco-Roman world of the first century. So by the time of the first century, Greece had been a major world power in the 4th through the 2nd century BC. Um, and they had left a huge footprint on the Mediterranean world. People in the first century still spoke Greek even though Rome had now taken over in Latin as their language, but no, nobody was really speaking much Latin. Greek was the, the trade language. It was how everybody talked to each other across ethnicities. So Greek was a language. Greek um, philosophy was really highly revered. Um, uh, Greek culture was very um, powerfully still influential. So... Um, Greek still has this deep footprint on the first century world, but Rome had come in in the second, first centuries BC and had taken over most of the, all of the Mediterranean world, essentially. They occupied it. They are the occupying force across the Mediterranean world. So politically, um, uh, in terms of military presence, Rome. So uh, scholars talk about the Greco-Roman world of the first century. It means the combination of those kind of worlds that have now collided and inform what life is like in first century um, Judea or first century Galilee or up there in Corinth. Um, the Greco-Roman world kind of has a lot of influence um, between language and culture and military power and the fact that we hear about a centurion and the story right after a person with a skin disease, the leper, um, means we're, this is a Roman centurion. This is, they show up in the story because they're part of the warp and the woof of the Mediterranean world. But then we also have the Jewish world of the first century. I kind of like to think of this as nested within the Greco-Roman world. They're not two distinct worlds. If you lived in Galilee, in a Jewish village, or if you lived in Judea or Jerusalem, a Jewish city, it doesn't mean you would have no um, rubbing shoulders with the Greco-Roman world. Of course, satur I mean, talking in Greek with uh, somebody who, 
who doesn't know maybe the local Aramaic. There, there's just a lot of ways that you'd be influenced by both of these. So they're not two distinct worlds, but I think of the Jewish world kind of nested within that one. And some of the things we want to pay attention to in the Gospels have to do with uniquely Jewish things. Pharisees. This is a Jewish group. It's not a Greek group or a Roman group. It's a Jewish group who are very committed to the law or the Torah. The Torah was a Jewish thing, not a Greek or a Roman thing. So just kind of paying attention to those contours, historical contours that we hear talked about in the, um, in the Gospels and for you in Luke and, pay, and thinking about how, um, what you might need to kind of get up to speed on a little bit as you think about um, what do I need to know about Pharisees when I start reading Luke? Do I need to know something about that group? Study Bibles are often great at giving you kind of just enough to know uh, about those groups to kind of read uh, with a little more of a sense of what the setting's about. So um, hit the buttons here. I'll just give a few examples few examples of um, how we can think about the first uh, century world as we listen and read Luke. Um, to know that the Greco-Roman world is really highly stratified. Few people at the top with a lot of power and wealth and control and um, a lot of people at the bottom with not much of that at all. A um, lot of day laborers, slavery was, was um, you know, just ubiquitous so that slaves would live in that bottom part as well in terms of their own agency, they didn't have any. Um, there's not really a middle class, it's just more like a pyramid than anything else. Um, so when you get questions in Luke, um, when the disciples ask Jesus a couple times, who's the greatest in the kingdom? That's probably a question very much influenced by that Greco-Roman context about who's at the top. Because they're thinking of the kingdom that's coming and they're like, ooh, maybe we'll be at the top because we're not at the top right now. None of those people that are followers of Jesus, none of the 12 are at the top. But they want to be. Um, so that, the question, who's greatest, kind of can be informed that by this highly stratified society of the first century world. Um, also, it's helpful to note that, you know, at the end of the story, who puts Jesus to death? It's Pilate. Pilate is the only, he's the Roman representative in Jerusalem. Only Rome can um, enforce capital punishment in the first century. So Rome and Roman um Crucifixion is, is a Roman form of execution. So you have this, this important Roman element that comes really to the fore at the end of the gospel as well. Jewish world. One of the obvious things is when you start to see in Luke so many references to the Jewish scriptures, to the Old Testament. Whether that's citation, like when Jesus pulls out a scroll and says Isaiah, and he quite, uh, quotes from um, Isaiah at a couple different points there, Isaiah um, 61 and something else. And, um, but other places where we might have more of a, um, a, an allusion, a few words that get picked up from the Old Testament, but we hear kind of this connection uh, in the storyline. Or when all of the people that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus, chapter 3, have a place somewhere in that Old Testament story. The Old Testament is just assumed all the way through. So if you're reading through Luke for this project that you're doing this year, and you hear some resonance from the Old Testament, feel free to jump back there and take a peek. Look at it and say, oh, Luke is using that text. I mean, Jesus has quoted it, or Luke will maybe um, uh, allude to a few words there in his narration or whatever it is. Pay attention to the Old Testament. That's a great resource for thinking Jewishly about Luke. And then um, another example, uh, synagogues in the first century world. Synagogues aren't things that are mentioned in the Old Testament, 
Um, but synagogues, by the time of the first century, are places where Jewish folks gather, both for worship but also for um, meetings, like uh, um, if, if there's an adjudication that needs to happen, a judgment that needs to occur. Um, that, that the synagogue is a place where kind of community life happens for the Jewish people. So there's a synagogue in Nazareth, and we hear about that in chapter 4. And there's a synagogue in Capernaum. And so knowing that these are Jewish institutions, um, places where Jewish people gather, uh, is helpful for reading the story. So there's just a few examples. But again, a study Bible can be really helpful to point out some of those, a um, little more historical information about some of those features. All right, so let's jump into Luke, next slide, and do some big picture things. So what I wanted to do, um, if you think about um, the forest and the trees analogy, um, we're often used to reading, to pay attention in Bible study to the forest. Details, which are, it's a really great way to read. I mean, I sometimes do a really close reading of a text and I learn a lot and it helps me understand what a, an author is doing better. Um, but you have to, at some point, when you're in the details, come up for air. You know, come up for air and look more widely. Look at the trees. So, oh, wait, no, forest, sorry. We're looking at the trees, leaves, all those things. Now we're looking at the forest. And I, actually, I would recommend or I, I would suggest that sort of good Bible study is about doing this thing between forest, wait, trees, forest. I'm not going to get it right in my trees, forest, tree, back and forth. Just as soon as you think, well, I've looked at this detail a long time, then pull back and go, what's going on in the surrounding context? What's going on from beginning to end? And then once you've done that enough and you're getting a little too general, then go back down into the weeds a little bit and do a little more investigative study. Those two should inform each other. And we're often good at doing one more than the other. And it might be that your spouse or your friend is good at doing the other one, and you're good at doing, you know, I'm good at the detail, and they're good at the global, right? We know what these things are. It's good to pay attention to where your strengths are. If you're really good at the detail, step back. Do some global. If you really do it, but good at the global, you can get a little too general in your assessment of what's going on. Get back into the detail. This back and forth is a good way to think about what Bible study is. Um, I have my students um, do a, a longish paper, or no, it's not a long paper, it's a paper on a longish section of text in Matthew, Matthew 21 through 22, and you're like, oh, that's just two chapters. There are like 90 verses in those two chapters, they're very long, like 45 in each. Um, and I had students do a paper on it, and I had a woman come up to me, and this is back in the days when people handed in papers, now they do it electronically online, but she handed in a paper to me, and she said, well, that was kind of dizzying. I said, you did it right. <laughs> if you're dizzy, you've done good study of the Bible because you've gone in and out. You've gone to see the trees, you come back out and see the forest. So if you get a little dizzy, that's just normal when we start to do good Bible study, I would say. And then rely on that person, if it is a spouse, who does it the other way. See what they're seeing because they're going to see some things that are different than you. <clears throat> or your small group says you gather next year or next week in that. So let's look at a few of the bigger picture things across Luke and across Acts. Now we're just going to go out to the forest level, okay? Geographical settings across Luke. I mentioned from Galilee, chapters 5 through 9, to Jerusalem, journey to, etc. Now let's get a little more granular. Whole thing starts in Jerusalem in the temple. Um, that's Zechariah, right? And then it goes to all of these places in the first couple chapters of Luke. 
we're in Nazareth, and then we're in Judea with Elizabeth, and then we're in Bethlehem where Jesus is born, and then we're in Jerusalem because then they're in the temple, and then they're at Nazareth again, but then they come back to the temple and they lose Jesus when he's 12, right? And then they go back to Galilee. So there's a lot of movement in those chapters. Uh, and then we have the Galilean ministry, basically chapters 4, 14 through 9, 50. Healings, calling of the disciples, healings, um, various teachings, and then really a very long travel time to Jerusalem. It's called the Lucan Travel Narrative. It's so famously long. So if you want to think relatively speaking, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have kind of a similar frame from Galilee to the time traveling to Jerusalem to Jerusalem. They all have that same progression. The travel narrative in Mark is chapters 8 through 10, so three chapters. The travel narrative in Matthew is chapters 16 through 20, that's five chapters. The travel narrative in Luke is 11 chapters, much longer. And we get a lot of teachings of Jesus, a lot of parables. We have different things that Jesus does. He heals, but he also has meals with people and there are banquet scenes. There's a lot of unique material that we only hear in Luke in this section. So a long travel narrative. Um, it's a beautiful thing, and I can say that because I require students. It's one of the hardest parts of Luke to outline, if you're just to outline a text. If you look at about 12 different commentaries on this part of Luke, they all look different. <laughs> Nobody can outline this section. So I have my students do a plot theme diagram of it, which they have to pay attention to, plot and theme, those the story discourse, right? And they have to pay attention to the sequence. Those are the three things I have to pay attention to. And they produce these gorgeous things. Um, and I want to show you my very substandard. Um, in the book, I have a picture of it, and I can never find what page it's on. Here we go. My plot theme diagram of Luke 5 through 9. It's something I started doing to help visualize what's going on. Forest plus trees. Forest plus trees. See all that detail? That's the trees but it also helps me see the whole. So I have all of chapters five through nine here. I have a little key that has all the themes that I have seen in it, um, and I'm sure I haven't recognized all of them. And I have the sequence, and I have key plot elements, teaching, miracles, meal scenes, disciples, controversies. Um, and I have students do something like that, and they produce the most amazing pieces of artwork, um, but also perceptive thinking about this large travel narrative. Come to Bethel Seminary, you get to do fun assignments. I'm just saying. Um, so next, they get to Jerusalem. They do finally get there. And um, chapters 19 through 24 are Jesus entering to Jerusalem and, of course, his arrest and his trials and his death and his resurrection. And then the last little bit, they end in the temple. So what do you notice about the way it begins in the end? And it ends. Oh, no, but you saw it. Temple, temple. What is this? Inclusio. Let's do it. Come on. Because there's no, it's not on the, we're just going to do this until the thing comes back up there. There we go. Yay. Inclusio. I think it's back one slide. But anyway, that's an inclusio. Temple to temple. Starts in the temple, ends in the temple. Matthew doesn't do that. Mark doesn't do that. John doesn't do that. Luke does that. The way he tells the story, he wants us to hear the temple is important. Hang on to that. Next, think of the, some of the char central characters and conflicts in Luke. Go ahead. I'm just going to have you do this whole thing. John the Baptist and Jesus, 
chapters 1 and 2, they're compared to each other a bit. God speaking in various moments in his story, baptism, transfiguration. To Jewish leaders, this is conflict. That's my little, um, what is it, a lightning thing. as conflict with the Jewish leaders, even with the demonic. Jesus casts out demons, right? Satan tempts him. Then we have disciples, and they're kind of like, sometimes there's an ideological conflict between the disciples and Jesus, but mostly they're portrayed more positively than negatively. Keep on going. More positive than negative. Minor characters often very positive. Coming to Jesus for healing, showing faith, that same kind of thing we saw in Matthew shows up in Luke. Lots of crowds throughout the text. And then at the end, Pilate and Herod um, and Rome's um, crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, so that's a quick look at some characters in Luke. And then let's look at Luke-Acts together. So I'm going to show you some places where you can see some of the same meta kinds of things going on in Acts as in Luke. Because Luke, um, is a two, Luke Acts is a two-part work. Luke seems to have anticipated even some of the things he wants to do in Acts as he's writing Luke. He certainly patterns some of the same kinds of things as we think about the meta story, the big picture, and the plot. So let's go to the first slide. So if you just wanted to say sort of what's a quick outline of each, um, in Luke, we have birth narratives and then the preparation for ministry. And then by 414, we're in the Galilean ministry. We've seen this already. Travel to Jerusalem, that long section, and then in Jerusalem at the end. In Luke, of course, or in Acts, we have um, Acts 1-8 being the most prominent verse in that first part of Acts, um, where he says, I will give you, a th um, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and I will give you, I'm, not, I'm combining it with something else, let's try this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you see that kind of worked out programmatically across Luke, or I mean across Acts. Um, one, eighth, one, chapter 1 through the beginning of 8, salvation to Jerusalem, and then persecution happens, and everybody but the 12, all the Christians get dispersed, and now the salvation starts to come to all of Israel, Judea and Samaria, that is, and then 9 through 28, salvation to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. The whole, this whole story wraps up in Rome. Paul is in Rome and imprisoned, but he's preaching. And the gospel has gotten all the way there, to the center of the ancient world, Rome. So, next slide. So that gives us a sense of what's going on. Let's think about those beginnings and endings again. Where did Luke begin? Temple. It ended in temple. Okay, let's see it. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is a different ending and beginning. We'll get to that one eventually. Um, the actual beginning words of Luke are here. Luke gives us a prologue, which is a gift because we don't get this in Matthew, Mark, or John exactly in terms of how he wrote this book, what he was doing. He writes, many, and many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Notice fulfillment language right away. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Notice how he grounds his writing in eyewitness testimony. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. He refers now to other orderly accounts or to other accounts. And this is a term for narratives. He has looked at other narratives, and I've written this down for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So, he takes what's been fulfilled in Jesus among us and he gets things from both oral tradition and written other written documents and he brings them together. 
It gives us quite a picture of how he's put together his gospel. Now, what does he say in Acts at the beginning? Same author, different book. Notice the connections. In my former book, Theophilus, same audience, whether that's a person, it means the one who loves God, and it could stand in for a bigger audience, or it could be an individual person. Um, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So now I just said, Luke is the beginning of what Jesus taught and did. So what's Acts? Continuation of what Jesus taught and did, I would presume, right? He's kind of implying that the story of Jesus goes on, and we think about who is the story of Acts about? Is that story about Jesus? I think yes. I mean, it reads like a story of the early church, and it is, truly, but at, at the base, it's supposed to be a story about Jesus, right? So, um, he says, all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, the apostles he, uh, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So the, the, um, the people that kind of guarantee the trustworthiness of what he's writing are highlighted there in gray, eyewitnesses, servants of the word, apostles he has chosen. I think those are overlapping groups. Um, and then he talks about what he's telling us about in the green and then his audience in the blue there. But notice the connections. Intentionally, I think, mirror, not mirroring, but um, showing the continuation of the Jesus story now in the book of Acts. All right, next one. And here's where I think we have the beginnings and endings. You can show the temple, temple. Luke begins in the temple, ends in the temple. Acts begins in Jerusalem, not in the temple proper, although we'll get to the temple in chapter Two, but it goes to the ends of the earth. There's a very much of a disperse, dispersing kind of movement from Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or excuse me, temple, temple, which is Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but then Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So there's kind of this movement outward that is a really important movement in Acts. And you've read Acts a lot, so this is like not rocket science. Of course, I know the gospel goes out, but it's an important theme, I think, I would say, in Acts. So let's look at a couple more slides, and then we're going to do some Q&A. I just want to few, show a few plotting patterns. This one's hard to say, late at night. So the plot moves along, but Luke is doing some things to show that he's plotted the story in similar ways. First of all, the Luke travel narrative. Remember that long thing? So Jesus going from Galilee, you can keep on going with this one, going up to Jerusalem, in Acts, we have a long journey, but here the journey is the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. Keep on going. All the way to Rome, chapter 28. Um, you could say Paul carries that gospel a lot once you get to chapter 9 and following. That's very true. Peter does some of the early parts, chapters 10 and 11, Cornelius' story. Um, but I think for Acts, um, less important than the people is the fact that the gospel goes out amidst um, persecution and trouble and some contest to it, some pushback against it, but the gospel goes and hits all the way to the center of the Roman Empire. Another plotting pattern, trial scenes. We're, we're, we're familiar with the trial of Jesus or the trials of Jesus in Luke. We have a trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the Jewish ruling council that consists of Pharisees and Sadducees and the chief priests or chief priests, um, and other priests, then before Pilate. But then in Luke, we have an additional um, account of Jesus going before Herod Antipas, so Herod who rules in Galilee. He's one of 
like Herod the Great's son, who now rules in Galilee. But he's in Jerusalem because it's Passover. Everybody goes to Jerusalem and pa- I mean, everybody goes to Jerusalem for Passover. And Pilate sends him to Herod Antipas because he hears that Jesus is a Galilean. This guy is your problem, not my problem. But Herod gets him and he, you know, Jesus won't perform for Herod. Herod really wants a performance more than anything else. So he sends him back to Pilate. So we get Pilate again, right? Next one. There we go. Yep. So that's the trial scenes. But there are some trial scenes in Acts 2. And it's Paul who's on trial, right? He has more trials than Jesus does. A Jerusalem crowd in verse 21, moving to the Sanhedrin, moving to Governor Felix, Roman, moving to Governor Festus, Roman, who succeeds Felix, and then moving to King Agrippa, a Jewish king, who is ruling over Judea, essentially. So quite a number of, and quite a number of chapters that are all about Paul's trial, um, set of trials. So um, these trials before tribunals happen to both Jesus and Paul, so there's kind of this pattern. Let's look at two final plotting patterns. We've already referred to this one a little bit. Luke begins in the temple. We have Jerusalem. It returns to that at the end. Keep on going. Um, But once we get to Acts 7, um, the gospel goes out to the whole of the Greco-Roman world, the whole Mediterranean world. Um, The gospel is being spread. This is kind of a decentralizing movement. Um, That means going outward versus coming inward. And why I think that is important, well, I'll, I'll say that a minute in a minute why I think that's important. Let's see the next one, plotting pattern, final plotting pattern. We also have people being um, kind of this decentralizing movement. First we have Jesus, then we have the 12, along in 8, 1 through 3, with female disciples who then make up the 72, and of course more than that in the 72, and then there's the 120 in Acts 1 in the upper room, And then the church, made up of Jew and Gentiles, many, many people at that point, with Jesus in their midst. That's the next picture. Spirit of Jesus, mentioned in chapter 16, is guiding the church throughout um, Acts. But then we also have this little um, set of unknowns in Acts. I call them unknowns because um, you would think the 12 might just go all the way through the narrative, right, in Acts? I mean, they become, they're really important at the beginning. In chapter 1, they choose somebody to take Judas's place because they need those 12 to represent the 12 tribes. And so they're 12, and they do ministry throughout the first eight chapters, and then they just drop out of the story. Pretty much they're gone after eight because they stay in Jerusalem, and all the action goes outward. And the people that are really interesting are people in chapter 6, like the seven who are chosen to be part of the ministry, uh, like Philip and Stephen, Stephen who is the first martyr, but Philip who goes and evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch. Now Peter does show up and goes into chapter 10 and 11 with, the, um, with Cornelius, but by 15, by chapter 15, it really is the case that these unknowns, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Luke himself puts himself in the story at some point, these are all people that aren't really known at the beginning of Acts. Now you say, well, Paul, we all know who Paul is. Well, you know who Paul is because he's written letters in the New Testament. But in the story of Acts, he doesn't show up till chapter 9. And he's, of course, an antagonist until Jesus confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So this unknown kind of then begins to take the gospel out to the ends of the earth. So kind of realizing how we might be expecting the 12 if we were following the storyline we even heard in Luke. 
it's always a more expansive group in Luke, but still the 12 are really important. And Luke tells us they're important. And yet we have this expanding group of people with more and more people involved and the Spirit working where the Spirit wants to in terms of who is important to the gospel at any particular point. So let's look at the final couple slides. So these, this movement from decentralization instead of centralization. In the Old Testament, we have a picture, it's a lovely picture, of the nations streaming into Jerusalem at the end of all things when God restores Israel. We hear, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that when we walk in his paths. These are Gentiles streaming into Jerusalem because they've heard what Israel is doing. This is the idealized picture of what Israel is to be for the nations. And they come and they say, we want to know this one. And, and that is what happens in Acts, except it doesn't go this way, it goes that way. It goes outward. And it's unexpected because the Old Testament has this picture of Israel, of, of Jerusalem, of Zion being the center of this everyone will know the true God. And in Acts, they go out with that message. And then we have, so in Acts, the gospel is going out through the Spirit's direction to the ends of the earth. We also have this decentralization move in terms of the people. The Old Testament, no, next, next one, there. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, Gentiles could come into Israel. We see that there are Gentiles that kind of hang around the edges of Israel. And you can come into Israel by becoming a full participant of the community through conversion, circumcision, obeying food laws, Sabbath keeping. Israel didn't say you can't become one of us. It's just this is how you do it. You follow the Torah, right? But now in Acts, we have a different picture, right? But first I wanted to note, uh, you know what, skip that slide. We'll do that later. That's right. I mean, not later, but someday. All right. So um, in Acts, the picture is of God revealing to the church through Peter's vision and the Spirit falling upon Cornelius and his household that non-Jews are accepted as full members of the covenant the new covenant community without conversion. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to obey food laws. They don't need to keep the Sabbath. In fact, Peter is still speaking when the Spirit falls. The Spirit interrupts Peter in his speech in, in Cornelius' household to say, it's time. These people are my people. They had responded to the message, presumably, and the Spirit falls. So we have this picture um, unexpectedly from the Old Testament, where again, Gentiles could become, come into Israel, but they had to become Jews, they'd convert to Judaism to become full, full members of the covenant community. Um, and here in Acts, a God-fearer, one who has been hanging around the synagogue, but not converting, not fully converting, but been, been taken with the God of Israel and worshiping the God of Israel, now is brought in, he and his whole household, not um, through circumcision, through food laws, through Sabbath keeping, but through the Spirit's sign that this new community will be Jew and Gentile together, eating together, living together, somehow making that all work. Those are a couple of the unexpected turns in Acts. So we're going to stop there, take questions. I sounded highly directive there, sorry. <clears throat> stop so there, um, as I was thinking about this, you know, have you ever gone to get a drink out of a hose? And somebody on the other end has the hose kinked, and you're like looking right at it, and then they open the hose, and you get splattered all over your face. 
Many of you just feel like that just happened. Like you were all excited, leaned into the hose, and you're like, what just happened? So we have some time for some questions. This group, for those of you who are brand new tonight, you want to get your questions in right away because there's always too many questions to be, to be answered. So if you're brand new tonight and you got a question, don't wait. Any questions about anything that Janine has gone over or maybe something that she didn't go over that you're like, why didn't she cover that? Yeah, there's some of those same kinds of tropes or um, patterns that, that in all, and, and you know, neurobiologists say that we are wired to for story. In other words, if, you, if I ask you about your life, you will tell it in story form. You will make sense of it from a story kind of perspective. That, so we're wired to do this thing. So we're wired to tell stories and we're wired to understand stories. Yeah. Thanks, Phil. Other questions that your neighbor has that you'll ask for them? Yes. Here, I'm going to bring you the mic. Um, I actually have two questions. The first is, why doesn't Acts follow Luke? And secondly, uh, is Luke Jewish? Is the author Jewish, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, not that we're aware. Now, we don't... Um, Nowhere in Luke Acts does it say, this was written by me, Luke, right? How do we know it's, it's attributed to Luke? Because the title, according to Luke, at the top of the text. Um, so it, it's early church ascribed it to Luke. And as they did so, um, what we know of Luke is that he's a Gentile, not a Jew. Um, so it seems, the, and that fits what we know of the writer, kind of just from paying attention to that writer we hear throughout the story. Um, that it, it, it feels like he has some Gentile sensibilities, but, but very much aware of and appreciative of the Jewish world. Uh, but the first question was? Oh, the four Gospels um, first circulated uh, before the whole New Testament is brought together, um, these uh, written on scrolls, these four, when, when first something like a book, codex, codice was um, put together, the four Gospels circulated on their own early on, like in the early second century. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John circulating together. Um, so likely it's because then at that point it's really hard to kind of slip Acts in there. I would like Luke-Acts to be together because I think it's hard to get that feeling of moving from one to another when you have to kind of flip past John. And John on its own is a great read too, so you don't want to miss it, but you want to save it for later maybe. But yeah, it's probably because of the circulation of the four together, the four Gospels. I mean, so Irenaeus, uh, church father of the late second century, talks about how it could be none, it, it could not have been the case, could not not have been the case that we had four Gospels. We were meant to have four. So this idea of the fourfold Gospel is really a prominent kind of affirmation in the early church. So the fact that they circulated together, more important to keep them together, I think, than but there's value in taking Luke and Acts and kind of hearing them back to back as you're doing. Other questions? Yes. So I 
take him at a game show. He's running around. Uh, Luke is described as the good physician. Um, is he a medical doctor, or is he more of a doctor of philosophy? I think the place where we hear that, I'm trying to remember, we hear that, do we hear that in Colossians, right? I'm trying to remember where we hear that. Somebody help me who's really good at that. Luke, 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 Luke. Um, we don't hear it in the text itself, right? Because we don't hear about Luke generally. Um, but he would have been a, a physician, medical physician. Um, so, uh, but I'm trying to think, where do we, we hear that? Isn't it in Colossians? As a New Testament scholar, I'm asking all of you, please. Colossians isn't my, I do less in Paul than in the gospel story. But yes, he's described as, when he, yeah, a doctor. They didn't have doctors of philosophy, per se. I mean, they had philosophers, most certainly. But a doctor would have been a medical doctor. Other questions? Um, so as a teacher, what I tell my kids a lot of the time about stories um, and the reason that we read stories is that whether they're written or whether they're spoken, they encourage us to make decisions about our own lives. And so if you want to take a look at just the book of Luke, what would you say it is encouraging us uh, or what decision is yeah. it encouraging us yeah. to make? That's a great question. That maybe differs from the Bible as a whole. Difference from the what? The rest of the Bible? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I wanted to just mention that narrative, uh, the narrative approach I call, uh, that refer, I refer to as narrative criticism, talks about something called the implied reader construct, which is sort of the, the reader that the author wants to shape. So I find that a helpful category to think about with that question is, so who is the implied reader of Luke? Who does Luke want his readers to be in the end? Um, most scholars consider um, that the Gospels are written first to believing communities, communities of Christians. So um, certainly Luke could function as an evangelistic story, you know, to introduce somebody to Jesus, but um, the first audience was probably the church. And we hear like Justin and Mario talking about how they read the, the Gospels for their own benefit. So I'm going to frame it in terms of what does Luke want a follower of Jesus who's read his gospel to do and be? Um, and it would have a lot to do with the themes that emerge from it. So I think if I had to do it off the top of my head, I would say Luke wants his, um, the community that follows Jesus, that reads Luke, to um, be more committed and loyal to this one Jesus, the Messiah, at the end of it, to... Um, to know that, um, that Jesus is both Savior and Lord of all things. I mean, is Lord of all. Uh, and that um, his, the people who follow him should have the same commitments and qualities he had, um, which would include care for those on the margins and um, uh, commitment to forgiveness and uh, would be committed to repentance, though Jesus didn't need to repent. I don't mean to put that under that Christological category. But that, that there'd be a, a, a community that is um, always turning and returning to Jesus, repenting, um, trusting, um, living that out in love for others uh, and love for one another, something like that. I mean, I'm just, you know, 
That, but that idea that it's a very active kind of um, message. So it's not just a message that they take. It's, it's a way they are shaped by the story to be more like Christ um, and to be um, those who are committed to living out and uh, proclaiming the gospel, the good news, uh, that God is now in the process of restoring all things, something like that. But that just gets at a little bit of the thematic stuff, right? So trying to grab at the things that I think are essential, but you may say, ah, oh, I think you've missed something big there, and I have. So, <laughs> so feel free to fill in some of those gaps. But that's a great question to ask. Who is the, you know, the person or the community that Luke wants to shape? And what does that shaping look like given those 24 chapters? We could, say, we could ask the same of Acts, of course, as well. It's a great question. Thank you. Other questions? Going once? Yeah. Proud of you people asking questions. So I guess in, in reference, you talked a little bit, and this may be a little elementary, but the relationship between the Torah and some of the readings that they used to have and then the current Bible, I guess, just what's the relation? What, what was yeah. the function of the Torah versus some yeah. of the Yeah. And do you mean like within the, the story kind of of the narrative, or do you mean more broadly than more that? More broadly, please. Okay. Um, for the Christian community today, then, I'm still trying to get kind of a sense of both, all, Say it again. So then, then, okay, yeah. Um, that's a great question because um, right in the middle of Acts, we have this, um, you know, the story of Peter, and the vision of unclean food coming down, and he's told take and eat this, and he's like, I can't, and you know, take it, eat it. I mean, it's this vision, um, uh, and the point of the vision is to show that God does not. Um, well, no, the, the Torah is no longer to be the defining boundary marker of the Messianic community, this new community that is based on, you know, the Israelite community, but now in the time of the Messiah is defined by the Messiah himself and the Spirit. Um, so I think um, the Torah can't be that defining boundary anymore. And Paul goes the same way as well in his letters. So it is the it is Jesus' Messiah that defines the boundaries of the community. If you're in the Messiah, you are just in the Messiah. There are no two tiers. Um, Gentiles don't have to eat separately than, than Jews. They had to figure out how to eat together, which in the ancient world is tricky because you are who you eat with. So, <laughs> you know, I can't eat with that Gentile. Get, you know, so they have to figure that out um, but, and, and defined by the Spirit as well. But I would say that the Jewish believers in Jesus, of course, were circumcised, obeyed the Torah, and I think probably still do, uh, can, and, uh, and most of them still did. So that's what made this living together really tricky. I mean, living together in the sense of eating together and living, sharing life together. Um, none of the New Testament writers say Jewish believers in Jesus can't circumcise their children or eat kosher or follow, um, you know, paying attention to the Sabbath as a Saturday kind of a, a, a occurrence. Um, instead, they say, you can't make Gentiles do that. <laughs> That's the key th theme in Galatians and in Romans and other places. So we hear the same thing in Acts very similarly, that that can't be a defining marker. But certainly Jewish people could continue to do that. And, and today, people who 
believe in Jesus who are Jewish, we do follow those same kinds of um, patterns and follow Torah, and I think that's quite appropriate. It's the key message is that Gentiles, because they're already, the Spirit is already upon them, they don't need to do that. They don't need to be defined ethnically as Israel because now Israel is bigger than that. The Israel of God is this bigger entity, according to Paul. I don't know if that... Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what Paul is doing. I mean, he's, he's saying that that can't be, there's no longer that divide, so we can't live in that divide. Romans 14 and 15 is really interesting to read in that regard as well, that, you know, the, uh, the sensibilities of those who have certain days and certain, that's, that's fine, they are to not judge those who don't, and those who don't have certain days and certain foods that they don't, like they can eat meat and that kind of thing, and pork, they, they can't despise those who have the stricter sensibilities. They are to welcome each other. That's what the community of faith is to be, this welcoming place for difference across these ethnic boundaries. All right, well, I have to say uh, thank you so much to Dr. Brown uh, today. Thank you so much. Yeah, you can join me in saying thank you. Thank you. Having intersected with her today has been just such this interesting geek fest for me and asking all these questions and talking about all these things that many of you could care less about. <laughs> but uh, truly, this is a gift for us to have her and her expertise to be able to talk about these things and introduce Luke in a way that certainly I would not have the ability to. And so for those of you who uh, maybe happen to stroll in late, I'm not looking at anyone who stroll in late. Um, I'm not saying this because I'm shaming you. I just wanted to keep you up to date. Uh, next week, we will jump into our discussion groups after we go through chapters one and two. Encourage everyone to read through or listen to uh, all of Luke in the next week. It takes, listening takes about three and a half hours. Um, so just carve out you know, it's like watching Dances with Wolves, except you don't have to switch out the, the tape halfway through, or Titanic, whichever is your favorite two-tape VHS movie. Um, so <laughs> you'll... <laughs> I think that's the most Tom has ever laughed. So I just, I so appreciate that. Um, but it's definitely worth your time because there are some themes that you're going to, that every time I listen, it's like, oh, I didn't see that before. I didn't uh, see that before. And so we'll get to join together in expressing some of those things. For bonus points, uh, you can write a one-sentence summary of Luke. I challenged our other group with that. And I know uh, Janine kind of was like, wow, that seems like a task. Yeah. <laughs> And yet, that's kind of what you yeah. gave in your well, in I, your. I gave seven or ten sentences. Yeah. <laughs> it was like one Pauline run-on sentence. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, thank you all. I'm so excited for you guys that have that are here tonight, especially those of you who showed up for the very first time and took a chance. So, uh, give it a few more chances before you dismiss it. If you do decide to dismiss it, just give it a few more chances. Um, but let's pray, and then we'll uh, go get your kids or whatever you're going to do. Again, uh, Lord, I just thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for each one of these people that is here tonight and their desire to engage and engage with this gospel of Luke. And so I just pray, Spirit, that you would be moving in us 
and that you would be continuing to prompt us to stir in us the desire to engage uh, with this gospel and with you, and not only the discernment as we read or listen to the text, but also uh, the perseverance uh, as we go throughout this study, that you would just enliven in us a passion to hear the words of Jesus and to, to seek out the life of Jesus as Luke gives us in his gospel. Be with uh, us tonight as we go forth, that as we intersect with other individuals, that we would be embodying the thing that Luke is calling those who are readers of his gospel to, to live into what Jesus calls us to live into and to care for each person that we come in contact with. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. If you want to schedule, they're uh, on that table.